welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Michael Klausner, professor of business and law at Stanford University. We'll be discussing his article, A Sober Look at SPACs, which is forthcoming in the Yale Journal on Regulation and was co-authored with Michael Alrogi of New York University and Emily Ruin. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Mike, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Mike, before we get to the core of your paper, and I wondered if we could talk about some of the basics, some of the basic concepts that you and your co-authors cover. What are special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs, and why did you decide to study them? Well, special purpose acquisition company or a SPAC is a publicly traded entity that has a two-year lifespan. It holds only cash, and its mandate is to find a private company with which to merge and thereby bring public. Why did I decide to study them? Well, that's a, a longish story. I'll give you a short version. I teach a course called Deals, where we have five transactions that we study a year, and guests come in and speak to the class about their transactions. A few years ago, I had a guest come in, and he was talking about a failed acquisition of his client by a SPAC. I had never heard of a SPAC before. So he was describing the transaction. He was describing the terms of the SPAC, which I suspect we will get to later in this podcast. And as he was describing the terms of a SPAC or the features of a SPAC, he said, and for every share, there's a warrant. The sponsor gets 20% interest following the IPO and so on. And as I'm listening to this, I say to him, wait a minute, wait a minute, you've got to be kidding. Do you really mean that this is how SPACs are structured? And his answer was, yes, though I don't represent them, I'm on the other side, so don't blame me. And from there, he happened to be a good friend, and we talked afterwards. I decided I was going to research SPACs. They were obscure. As I said, I had never heard of them before. I just thought they were very strange, very inefficient, and surely would not last very long. So I decided to take up a little research project on them. And in fact, the first time I presented my first draft of the predecessor of this current paper, I started by saying, this is the most obscure topic I've ever researched. I don't recommend it to anyone who doesn't already have tenure because in all likelihood, no one is going to care. That's how I got started. So that's how you got started and how you got interested in SPACs. And perhaps they are not so obscure anymore. A lot has changed since then, and a lot more people are interested now. What happened? Well, that's a good question. I don't have a good explanation for what happened. But what did happen was, first, I was wrong in thinking they would shortly disappear because they were so inefficient. They became the next new thing in the IPO or the going public process in the financial markets. And my original paper is in the trash can. The original data I collected for older SPACs is thrown away. I started over collecting SPAC data beginning in 2019 through June 2020. 
which was a period in which they started surging, though nothing like what's happening today. Thus far, I've heard, I think, a sense of skepticism on your part about SPACs, and you've noted that they seem rather inefficient. It's a complicated story, but I wondered if you could maybe walk through how SPACs work as a matter of their structure and the transactional steps that go into a SPAC-based merger or the creation of a SPAC. It begins with a sponsor. A sponsor could be a private equity fund or a affiliate of a private equity fund or affiliate of a hedge fund, or it could be you and me. We just decide we're going to start a SPAC together and we create a corporate vehicle. We write into the charter certain terms that are required of SPACs or that are customary in SPACs. One of those terms that we're going to write in is that we will own 20% of the post-IPO equity of the company. That's called the promote. So that's element number one of the structure, the 20% promote that the sponsor owns. Second element of a SPAC is that it issues in its IPO units, not just shares. The units consist of a share and a warrant and sometimes a right. The right where it exists is a right to one-tenth of a share for free when and if the SPAC ultimately merges. So a unit has a warrant, a share, and it may have a right. Where it has a warrant, it's a warrant for between one quarter and one full share of the SPAC. So I've described the promote, the warrant. The next important element is redemption. It provides a right to shareholders to redeem their shares at the cost of a unit. So units always sell for $10. A holder of a unit can hold on to its share and at the time of the merger, redeem its share for $10, keeping the warrant and the right if the right is included in, in the units. So the structure, its key elements are a promote of 20%, warrants for between one quarter and one share, and a redemption right. You say that SPACs are dilutive. How so? Well, this is a key problem with SPACs. The features of SPACs that I just explained are the sources of dilution. The sponsor gets 20% essentially for free. If I didn't mention earlier that those shares were the sponsors for free, I am now. Uh, that is highly dilutive. In addition, the warrants and the rights are highly dilutive. And finally, there's a third cost, which technically isn't dilution, it's rather a payment, and that's the underwriting fee. The way that works is as follows. The underwriter gets a fee of 5.5% for a SPAC. Part of it is paid at the outset, part of it is conditional on the SPAC merging. And until now, SPACs have merged over 90% of the time. Now, the 5.5% fee is actually somewhat lower than an ordinary underwriting fee. But recall that SPAC shares are redeemable. So, so imagine that 50% of shares are redeemed. That's not an unreasonable number. We found that on average, about 55% of SPAC shares were redeemed during our sample period from January 2019 until June of 2020. And the median was, in fact, 75%. So high redemptions are not unusual. And if you think about that 5.5% underwriting fee on a post-redemption basis, it becomes 
substantially higher. With 50% redemptions, it becomes twice as high. So the underwriting fee is a drain on cash in the SPAC. The result my co-authors and I find is that SPACs that merged between January 2019 through June 2020, where shares were supposedly worth $10, on average had $6.40 in cash behind them. This is a serious problem for SPACs. So you make the case that SPACs are dilutive. What's the end effect or end result of that dilution? We find that when a SPAC merges with a target, it's the SPAC shareholders that bear the cost of that embedded dilution. That is, targets negotiate merger terms based on the cash that they see in the SPAC, not the purported $10 per share value. As a result, SPAC mergers on average are losing propositions for SPAC shareholders. For each of the past 10 years, SPAC shareholders on average have lost money. And during the sample period that we looked at, all of 2019 through the first half of 2020, SPAC shareholders on a market-adjusted basis lost money. We found that that was directly resulting from the dilution. This was once, not that long ago, an obscure investment vehicle and is now the hot new thing. Have market participants offered any justifications in favor of SPACs that might help explain this explosion of their use in the capital markets? Do those justifications find any support in your study? And you've alluded to the SPAC structure being inefficient, but what are the drivers of that inefficiency or what form does that take? Why don't I start with the inefficiency and then I'll come back to the justifications that some people in the market offer. So the inefficiency would be measured by the transaction costs that I've described, which generally manifest themselves as dilution. So a sponsor is being paid 20%. Warrant holders have warrants for free. They're making a return of 11.6%. The underwriter is being paid a fee much higher than its charges for a normal IPO if you calculate that on the basis of post-redemption shares that find their way into the combined company. So those three costs, sponsor costs, IPO investor cost, underwriter cost, post-redemption, result in a situation where, in effect, the amount of cash in a SPAC we calculate to be about $6.40 for what purports to be a $10 share. If you compare that to the cost of an IPO, it's much higher. The cost of the IPO is the underwriting fee. And depending on one's view, one could include in that cost of an IPO the underpricing or the pop that occurs on the day of a IPO. That's debatable. That is, whether that is a cost is debatable, but we find that the cost of a SPAC is much higher than the cost of an IPO, including that pop or underpricing. Now, I also want to qualify what I mean by a cost. At this point, what I've described are the private costs, that is, total cost anyone pays in bringing a company public via a SPAC or via an IPO. If you look at it in terms of social cost or transaction costs strictly defined, 
the costs of a SPAC are higher as well. Those costs would be effort expended that could have been expended elsewhere. So think of the sponsor. Sponsor has other businesses uh, it can engage in. Its involvement in a SPAC has no counterpart in an IPO. Therefore, the transaction costs from a social point of view are higher for a SPAC as well. The other costs are more debatable, whether those are private costs or social costs. So that's the inefficiency. What justifications are offered? One often hears that SPACs are faster than IPOs. That's not really subject to measurement. When someone starts an IPO is not known. When someone starts negotiating with a SPAC or multiple SPACs is not known. What we found in interviewing people is it's at least debatable whether a SPAC is in fact faster than an IPO. Another justification is that SPACs offer more certainty, specifically deal certainty and price certainty. With respect to deal certainty, there's some nuances there. As I said, redemptions can be very high. So a target can have certainty of a deal with a SPAC, but for how much? Is it going to be a $200 million deal or is it going to be a $20 million deal? There's no certainty about that because redemptions are uncertain. Price certainty. Remember, I said that there is $6.40 on average in a SPAC at the time of a merger. That's the amount of cash that the target is getting on a per share basis. That too varies depending on redemptions. If redemptions are very high, then the amount of shares that were paid for will be low, whereas the amount of shares that were not paid for, the sponsors 20%, and the warrants, which we can count as a fraction of a share, those are staying constant. So the ratio of not paid for shares to paid for shares is going to vary depending on redemptions. So from that perspective, price certainty is not as clear an advantage as some people claim. So we find that these justifications are at least debatable. Finally, as I've said, we found that on average, SPAC shareholders bear the costs embedded in a SPAC. Targets don't bear that cost. So at least on average for targets, merging with a SPAC is cheaper than an IPO. Now, how long will that last? It's hard to say, but I have to believe that at some point, SPAC shareholders will not continue bearing these costs and losing money as a result. At that point, if targets were to bear the costs embedded in a SPAC, I expect that they would opt for an IPO to the extent the IPO option is available to them. I'd like to turn to some of the legal implications of SPACs and and the regulation of SPACs. How does U.S. securities regulation facilitate the SPAC structure versus a traditional IPO? And are there any regulatory reforms that would be advisable on that front? Well, IPOs are governed by the public offering rules and SPACs are governed by the merger rules. That creates a set of differences, some of which are debatable, but some are not. Projections are one that's not debatable. There's a safe harbor for projections and other forward-looking statements included in a proxy statement or in any statement made in connection with a merger. One routinely sees projections in SPAC proxies. IPOs don't have the benefit of that safe harbor, and one rarely sees projections 
in an IPO prospectus. So that's a big difference. Advocates for SPACs cited as an advantage of a SPAC that they can provide projections. I think that's questionable. If it is an advantage, then it should be permitted for IPOs as well. So the differential treatment of projections is a difference that favors SPACs and I think is questionable. It ought to be evened out one way or the other, either allow it in IPOs and SPACs or disallow it in both. If one is concerned about SPACs overpaying for targets, then one might want to go in the direction of disallowing projections for both SPACs and IPOs. So projections are one clear area of difference. Another clear area of difference is the application of Section 11 of the Securities Act. It provides for strict liability for an issuer in an IPO and negligence-based liability for the underwriter. In a SPAC, there is no Section 11 liability, so the underwriter is not liable as underwriter. It could be liable as an aider and a better in a Section 14 action, but it's unclear how much aiding and abetting would be necessary for the underwriter to be liable under Section 14. I think it's fair to say that the absence of Section 11 in a SPAC transaction offers liability protection for the underwriter. Does that affect its due diligence? I can't say, but it's a question. I wonder whether there is as much due diligence in a SPAC merger as there is in a IPO, specifically with respect to the projections. Is anyone paying attention to those projections? So those are two differences. The other area of reform that I think would be very useful would be straightforward disclosure of the dilution involved as a result of the promote, the warrants, the underwriting fee, and the redemptions. I imagine a table that would be conditioned on 20% redemption, 40% redemption, 60% redemption, 90% redemption. How much dilution will there be under each of those scenarios? Because, of course, the redemption doesn't occur until after the proxy statement. We don't know what it's going to be. But a series of conditional measurements of dilution would be quite easy for a SPAC and its target to provide. The other thing that I would include would be a clear disclosure of the sponsor's financial interest in the transaction. Exactly how much will the sponsor take out of the transaction? And what return does that represent on whatever the sponsor put into the transaction? What key takeaways would you like listeners of this conversation or readers of the papers to have? And are there any open questions that you want to explore in the future? Key takeaways would be SPACs are highly dilutive. SPAC sponsors do very well, even if shareholders don't do very well. And disclosure of these aspects of SPACs is at best opaque. One can find it, but it's not transparent. So those, I would say, are the key takeaways. Open questions. The biggest open question for me is, how is it that we found statistically that SPAC's targets do not bear the cost of dilution? Let me just take a moment to explain what we found. We did a correlation between pre-merger cash in the SPAC, 
which again, averaged $6.40, with post-merger share value. And we found a striking correlation with a very high R-squared, a 0.33 R-squared. What that means, as I alluded to earlier, is that the targets are looking at the cash in the SPAC and using that to determine the share ratio to which they're going to agree. Exactly how does that happen? Are they inflating the value of their companies to reflect an inflation of the value of a SPAC from $6.40 on average to $10? I don't know. I'm curious how those negotiations work. That's my biggest open question. Our guest today has been Michael Klausner, professor of business and law at Stanford University. We've discussed his article, A Sober Look at SPACs, which is forthcoming in the Yale Journal of Regulation. It was co-authored with Michael Orogi of New York University and Emily Ruin. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Mike, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.